Good morning. Let's open with a word of prayer. Lord God, we gather together as your body, as your bride, as your church. And Lord, we know that you set your love upon us not because you found us lovely, but that you have determined to make us lovely because you have set your love upon us. And so, Lord, wash us with the water of your word. Have your way with us. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. Lord, that you would be glorified in our midst and that we would better understand you and your mind and your will for us and your plans. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. This, this morning we begin a three-week um, excursus in preparation for diving into the final section of Zechariah. As you remember, I've, I've argued that Zechariah is broken up into three sections. We've covered the first section, chapters 1 to 6, the eight night visions. The second section, verse chapter 7 to 8, the, the question sent by the delegates from Bethel, should we continue fasting? And, and God's four-part response. But as we move into chapters 9 through 14 of Zechariah, um, the book focuses nearly solely on the future rejection of the Messiah and then his coming conquest and establishing of, an, of a kingdom on earth. And because of that, there are some issues that we need to resolve first if we're going to understand this, this passage rightly. There's some, some presuppositions, some things that we believe that are written to our statement of faith that Daniel and I felt, and the elders, agreed needed to be addressed. And so what we're going to deal with for the next three weeks is, is, an, is understanding two issues that are complementary with each other. The first, what is the relationship between Israel and the church, between ethnic Israel and the church of the risen Lord. What relationship is there? And the second is what is this kingdom that is spoken of so often in the Bible? What is, what is meant when and Peter asks in Acts chapter 1, Lord, is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? So much of what Zechariah is writing to assumes his people are well-versed, are steeped, nay, are expectant and excited about this kingdom. And so as he describes it, it would help us, I think, to, to get a bird's eye view of, of just what the Bible has to say about that, what the people of Zechariah's day are expecting. So we're going to dive in this week on, on part one of Israel and the church. Next week, we'll look at part two. And then the third week, Pastor Daniel will look at this messianic kingdom, this coming kingdom that the risen Lord will establish so that's our question this morning. What is the relationship between ethnic Israel and the church? Now that may seem like an obtuse or abstract question, the type of thing theologians like to disagree and debate, but having very little practical effect. I assure you that is not the case. But before we go any further, let me lay out the two traditional answers. And I want to make a caveat that good, godly brothers and sisters that we're going to see in heaven, people that I am glad to sit under at conferences whose books I profit from reading, differ on this issue. Um, this is not a good guy, bad guy issue. I do think God's word is clear. I do think it's true. But good, godly men and women would disagree with us. In fact, the position held by this church is probably, almost certainly, the minority position in the current worldwide church and definitely the minority position in the historic church. 
So there are two possible answers to this question when we ask, what is the relationship to Israel and the church? The first, and I'm sort of using broad categories here because there's many subsets within the two, is covenantal or covenantal theology. And the answer here, and this is the the view of the Roman Catholic Church, this was the view of the Protestant Reformers, this is the view of the Presbyterian, the Methodist Church, this is the view in church history held by most Christians. That is the belief that the church is true or spiritual or renewed Israel. And thus the church, and this is the key point, receives all God's promises made to Israel that, that were not fulfilled in literal Israel. Whatever promises are remaining to Israel, the church inherits them. The church being true or spiritual or renewed Israel. One of the reasons why this took off so strongly in the early church is in 70 AD, Jerusalem was absolutely destroyed by Titus Andronicus. He came in, crucified thousands of Jews. The temple was taken apart stone by stone, and the Jews were dispersed. There was no nation of Israel. There was a dispersion of Jews, but there was no Jewish people anywhere. And then, the next development is that in the fourth century, Christianity got united with the state. And we entered into Christendom. And under Constantine, And as the church is trying to grapple with what to do, there is no longer in Israel. The church is now a political entity. Israel was a political entity. And this notion that the church now has sort of stepped into the place of Israel or is occupying that position, it helped them make sense of what to do. How do Christians live in a theocratic government? It was quite challenging. And so for most of church history, that has been the dominant belief. There are evidences of, of, of lights and voices throughout church history that disagree, but the dominant answer church history would give is no, that the church is true or spiritual or renewed Israel. And the key issue here is that therefore the church receives all the remaining promises given to Israel that had not been fulfilled um, up to that point. And the other answer, and the position of this church, the position that I and the elders believe, and what I'll be arguing for this morning, is the dispensational position, which states that the church in Israel remained distinct in God's unfolding plan. The church in Israel remained distinct in God's unfolding plan. This is actually written into our founding documents, our statement of faith. I'll just read to you part of Article 8. We believe that all who are united to the risen and ascended Son of God are members of the church, which is the body and bride of Christ, which began at Pentecost and therefore is distinct from Israel. And then in point 16, about the millennial reign, this says, Christ will be the king of this millennial or Davidic kingdom with the nation of Israel occupying an exalted position within the kingdom. That's the position held by this church, that there's a lot of overlap, there's a lot of similarity, there's a lot of commonality between the church and ethnic Israel, but at the end of the day, they are distinct. The overlap is not total. They remain distinct. So now let me ask, why is this important? I brought up probably a question many of you have not even considered. Why make a deal of this? Why add it into our statement of faith? Why spend three weeks getting ready to study through this. I want to offer at least three short answers why it's important. The first is how we answer this question will really determine how we view ourselves as Christians and our identity, and our identity as a church. 
One of the things I've, I've tried to say, and you've probably heard me say, is that the church is a transnational, non-political entity. And what I mean is, we the church, there, there are no national boundaries for the church. We recognize brothers and sisters in other countries. We don't divide ourselves along geographic boundaries. There is no geopolitical center to the church. We have no central city or country. But wherever God's people gather together, there he is. That was not true of Israel. Israel was a geopolitical entity. Israel had a geographic center. But if you view yourself as new, restored, renewed, true Israel, that will change your identity. And not that everybody who believes the church is Israel would do this, but I would submit to you that you could not have things like the um, Inquisition or the Holy Wars or the Crusades without first establishing that the church is a geopolitical entity. So that was enabled by the church that believed, no, it was right for the church and the state to unite. It was right for Christians to bear the sword in the name of Christ. Also, similarly today, belief that Israel has, is, is in the place of or has received Israel's promises or however you want to say it, and I'm wrestling with the way to say it because there's many different strains and variants, and so it's hard for me to speak as if there's one view. I'm trying to speak to what the views hold in common. But, but you could never arrive at the doctrine of infant baptism without first assuming the church is in some sense the new Israel. Because the argument for infant baptism is that Israel gave the sign of the covenant to their children. And then the in-between step is the church is in some sense new, restored, true Israel. Therefore, we give the sign of the covenant to our children. So, so practically, our identity, who we are, that matters. But I think for our study of Zechariah, even more importantly, it will radically affect how we read the Old Testament. And I want you to sympathize with why so many have gravitated towards the covenantal view. You see, if you you believe as I do, as, as we do here, that the church is distinct from Israel, then you've got a big question of what to do with two-thirds of your Bible. If 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 we're not Israel, and admittedly, from Exodus chapter 20 on, we have the history of Israel. From the giving of the law at Sinai after the Exodus then what do you do with your Old Testament? Do we just rip it out as the Marcionites did? Of course not. Because even though I do not believe that we are Israel, we can learn of God and His covenant love. We can stand on the sidelines watching His interaction with Israel. Paul says that all these things were written for our instruction. They took place for our edification. They don't have to be written directly to us and about us for us to profit and benefit from them. But that was one of the reasons why so many people gravitated towards this is they just plug themselves in. And, and as we've seen in, in Zechariah so far, Zechariah has given promises to Israel. God has made promises through him that are not directly given to us. The rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem is not the promise that God will rebuild the walls of your life. No, he's going to rebuild Jerusalem. Um, but this also then means we got to be careful on the other side because sometimes Christians, we like to get these plaques up on our walls and I, I hope I'm not stepping on any toes when I do this, but these are promises made to Israel not to directly the church. Familiar passages like Jeremiah 29, written to the returned exiles. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are accomplished for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. 
plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. And you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Now people love that verse. It's a wonderful verse demonstrating God's heart and his loyal covenant love to Israel. It is not first and foremost directly written to the church. Unless you've just recently come back from an 80-year stint in Babylon, it, it isn't directly written to us. But we can sit on the sidelines and say, what wondrous love is this? See the heart of our God who loves in this way. And when he places his electing and saving love on us, we know that he loves us with that same heart. Or another passage that, that is very popular showing up on, on bumper stickers and, and, and posters on the wall is Second Chronicles 7.14. This is Solomon's prayer of dedication at the temple in Jerusalem. And he predicts that the people will fall away. It always strikes me as interesting how Solomon and, and Moses are well aware that this, this Sinai covenant isn't going to work in the first order. And he says this, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now in that case, the people who are called by his name are a very specific people. It's Israel. And their land is the land he promised to give Abraham. Um, this is not something we can legitimately start applying to other countries. God may or may not choose to bless a people's land that way. The promise was given through Solomon to Israel. The people being spoken of is Israel. So we've got to be careful on this. Because if we acknowledge there is a distinction, then when we're reading through our Old Testaments, we've got to say, okay, is this something directly stated to us? Or is this something that we can learn about who God is and his ways and how he interacts with people? So how we read our Bibles is at stake. And third, how we understand God's future plan is at stake as well. And this is probably where it shows up most significantly. Because depending on how you answer that question of Israel's relationship to the church will radically and and in irreconcilably answer how you understand future things. The book of Revelation, Daniel's prophecy, specifically the end of the book of Zechariah. Because if you, like us, think that Israel is distinct from the church, then when God promises to rebuild Jerusalem, when God promises to re-inhabit Jerusalem, we say, great, amen, wonderful. But what do you do with those promises if you conclude, well, we're somehow Jerusalem, and we're somehow Israel, then you've got to do something very different with how you understand the book of Revelation, with how you understand the end of Zechariah. And these come down to different eschatological views that Daniel might touch on slightly. But trust me, it is a radical in how you read prophetic scripture aiming towards the future. It, it does matter. It does matter. These, these are good brothers. We love them. We can disagree, we can, we can have dialogue, but as it is written to our statement of faith, and more importantly, as this is how our understanding and how I will be teaching the last chapters of Zechariah, I thought it was worthwhile to stop and spend a week or two to explain why we're interpreting it this way. Because you might read or interact with other brothers and sisters, other Christians who have radically different understandings of these last chapters of Zechariah. And so I thought it was good, it seemed good to the elders to do this. So in the box on your handout then, is, is the answer I want to give. And then I'll be defending in the rest of this message and next week. This week we'll be looking at it sort of um, from points. Next week, I, I, I'm an expositor. I like dealing with the text. We're just going to walk through one passage. We're going to walk through Romans 9, 10, and 11. That'll be next week. We'll just deal with one passage in the New Testament. But this week, 
We'll try to understand this, but here's the, the, the answer that I'm going to try to defend. The identity of Israel and the church, while overlapping in many ways, remains distinct. Both are saved by faith through the same covenant of promise. Both together constitute God's chosen and elect people. However, God's earthly plan for each remains distinct. So I, I want to freely acknowledge there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of similarity. There's a lot of continuity. But there are also areas of discontinuity and distinction such that we cannot simply say what the one was, the other now is. We, I don't believe we can say that. I want to make one further caveat, and as you'll see written in here, Israel, national Israel, has never been and will ever never be saved based on their birth, based on their descent. Salvation has always been through faith. Always. So we believe that Israel has a future that God has not done with them, but is only a believing, repentant, faithful Israel whom God will bless. And when we get to it in, in a few weeks into Zechariah chapter 12, we'll read that before the Lord comes and fights for Israel in chapter 12, verse 10, a national conversion first takes place. Zechariah 12, 10. This is as all the nations of the world gather around Jerusalem to make war with her. Verse 10 of Zechariah 12. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. Over 400 years before the crucifixion of the Son of God, Zechariah prophesies, there'll come a day, there'll come a day in the far, far distant future when because of God's grace, because he pours out his spirit, they will suddenly get it and they will realize that they have pierced God. They will mourn, and they will repent, and they will believe. And then in chapter 14, verse 4, on that day, the Lord will go out to fight, and his feet will stand to the Mount of Olives. What this means then is that an unbelieving, covenantally unfaithful Israel has no divine claim to the land. We are not just blind Zionists. Um, we need to evaluate the current issues in regards to justice, but Israel has no biblical claim to the land while Israel is being unfaithful. If anything, national Israel should expect a continuation of covenant curses in response to their unbelief. So all of these promises and what we see coming for Israel will come as a result of their fidelity to the living God, of their faith in their Messiah. So, with that said, this morning, with the time left to me, three reasons why the church is distinct from ethnic Israel. Three reasons why the church is distinct from ethnic Israel. And by the nature of things, I've got to move quickly. I'll be quoting the text. You'll be welcome to follow along with me, but I'll only ask you to turn to about two or three of these um, of the texts that we'll be going to. Three reasons why the church is distinct from ethnic Israel. Number one. The absence of any compelling arguments to the contrary. The absence of any compelling arguments to the contrary. And again, it's difficult to respond to arguments because there isn't one simple standard covenant position. Different arguments are made. Different nuanced versions exist. And in the time I have, I'm just going to try to deal with some of the main arguments put forward by my brothers in the, in the um, Reformed and Covenantal community. I don't pretend to deal with them all. 
And if you have questions, please come talk to me and talk to Pastor Daniel afterwards, and we will um, endeavor to deal with those. But the absence of any compelling arguments to the contrary. For the last few weeks, I've been reading, looking up the strongest arguments for those who do believe that Israel and the church are now the church's true Israel. Um, I want to look at briefly the two main passages cited to try to prove from the New Testament that Israel is, in fact, the church. The first is Galatians 6.16. I'm going to read that to you. It's the end of Galatians, and Paul writes this, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon you and upon the Israel of God. Now, it's argued by some that that phrase, the Israel of God, is a reference to the church. But the problem is, if you read through Galatians, Paul's already made it clear the church is a new thing. He even said it in the verse before, that, that there is neither male nor... Wait, wait a sec, sorry, Galatians 6.15. For neither circumcision counts for anything or uncircumcision. Being, being an ethnic Jew in the church or being a Gentile counts for nothing. Counts for nothing but a new creation. There's something new in its place. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And I, th- I think it's really simple just to say that Paul, we will see next week in Romans 9, Paul's heart is bleeding for his countrymen. And Paul is aware that there is a small remnant of believing Israelites. And so Paul in his closing doxology in Galatians is, is speaking to the church and blessing them who are faithful and the Israel of God, to to true believing Israel, the remnant that in Paul's day existed. Um, This is not the proof text that's so often used, and it doesn't prove what is so often argued that it proves. The other passage is Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul again is speaking of the church. And again, I apologize for the brevity of, of dealing with these passages, but these are the two main Positions. Charles Ryrie in his book on premillennialism cites these two passages as the main passages used to argue that Israel is the church. And in, in Ephesians chapter 2, we read this. I'm going to read verse 15 and then 19 to 22. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So get this, what Christ did in dying on the cross is there was a dividing wall. It even existed in the temple separating the Jews from the Gentiles. There was the outer court of Gentiles separate the inner court where Jews could go. And Christ in dying on the cross tears down this wall, making for himself one new man in place of the two. Get that. It's not that the Gentiles become Israel, it's the Israelites and the Gentiles together form something new, the church. By abolishing the law that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. And Ryrie writes about this passage. In this passage, Gentiles are expressly said to be excluded from the blessings particular peculiar to Israel. In going on, he states, their blessings in the church, Paul does not say that once having believed, these Gentiles now come into these right blessings, but rather... 
that God has brought about a new thing, the new man in Christ Jesus. And that's the key point. The two are made into something new, the church. It's not the other group is, is made into the original group. But the Jew and the Gentile become something new. In the church, there is neither male nor female. In the church, there is neither slave nor free. In the church, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. But we are the bride of Christ and the body of Christ. That's, that's all that Paul is saying. And Charles Ryrie, after looking at these two passages, sums it up by saying, we may safely conclude that if these key passages do not identify Israel and the church as amillennialists claim, then no passage in the New Testament does. So those are the, those are the primary arguments, those passages. Um, let, me, let me deal with one or two other points, again, very quickly. The other thing we need to remember is this. Abraham is not Jacob. Abraham is not Jacob. What I mean by that is this. There are many New Testament passages that teach that you and I as Christians are sons of Abraham. We sing that song at Awana, you know, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so were you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, right, right. Okay. Um, yeah, it ends up becoming a game of Twister. Um, but, but we are sons of Abraham. The, the Bible is clear on this. Listen to Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel before to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then in chapter 329, he says clearly, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We are sons and daughters of Abraham. My point is this, Abraham is not his grandson. It's Jacob who gets renamed into Israel. And it's Jacob who fathers the nation of Israel. God told Abraham he would father many nations. That's your blank. Abraham fathered many nations. And so frequently what I'll see in the writings of, of my brothers and sisters on the other side of this is this assumption that, see, we're children of Abraham, therefore we're Israel. And I want to say, whoa, 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 hold up, hold up. Abraham would father many nations, many nations. Listen to God's promise in Genesis 17. No longer shall you be called Abram, but you should be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So to prove that Israel is the church, or the true Israel is the church, or, or whatever the, the phrase is, uh, and different groups adopt different variations of that, you need to do more then demonstrate that we are children of Abraham. Of course we are. Of course we are. The, the next point, point C, is that similarity does not equal shared identity. Um, I don't know if you know this, but cats have tails and dogs have tails. And cats have four legs. Dogs have four legs. And cats are used by people as pets. And dogs are used by people as pets. Therefore, I think it's quite obvious that cats are dogs and dogs are cats, right? Try, try selling Joel on that one, right? <laughs> um, and again, what I'll see in a lot of readings is absolutely there's overlap. In Exodus 19, God says to Israel, you are a chosen and treasured people, a kingdom of priests. And, and Peter calls the church the exact same thing. Um, absolutely. 
Israel is God's elect. He chose them. We are God's elect. He chose us. Amen and amen. There's admittedly a lot of overlap, a lot of similarity. But again, similarity does not prove identity. Similarity does not prove that something is the same thing. And quite frequently, what I'll when I'm asking people, give me some arguments, they'll just point to passages that show the similarity and, and they're sort of assuming that because these things resemble each other, they must be the same thing. That's just sloppy thinking. Or I've got a cat to sell you or a dog to sell you, I suppose, depending on how you define it. Um, that similarity does not equal a shared identity. Um, the last thing I see sometimes is this belief that the physical is opposed to the spiritual. And what I'll frequently read is this notion that once, once spiritual realities come, they sort of make physical realities inferior. We read in Ephesians about how the church, Christ is building up for himself a spiritual temple. We are the temple of God. That's a, that's a spiritual truth. We are not literally being constructed into a building. But spiritually, we are the temple of the living God. And what people, and, and I want you to get how this is something people can resonate with. Once you learn that the church is a spiritual temple, the notion that God would go back, in their minds, go back to an earthly temple seems like a step backwards. But that really comes from a notion that somehow the physical is inferior or is, is bad compared to the spiritual, which is a notion we get not from scripture, but from Plato and his dualism. Um, Charles Feinberg, in a commentary on Zechariah, says this, too many minds, to too many minds, the introduction of literalness into kingdom promises does away with the spiritual. What is so unspiritual about the personal, visible reign of the Messiah of Israel? Does not the same word that predicts it also state clearly that from Jerusalem, the seat of the government of the righteous king will go forth? Wherein is the law lacking a spirituality? Paul declares the law to be holy and right. Again, we must maintain that literalness and a material kingdom with material conditions of prosperity in no wise excludes or mitigates against the spiritual. That just because there's, there's a spiritual reality doesn't somehow make the, the physical realities of Christ's rule on earth somehow unimportant or lesser or a step backwards. Yes, the church is the temple of the living God, but Ezekiel pretty clearly over about 10 chapters makes it clear there is a physical temple yet to be built for the millennium. And that is not a step backwards. That is not lesser or unspiritual because all of that is heading towards the ultimate picture of temple when the eternal state, there is no temple because God is with his people. All that, that's where that's all headed. That's all headed to the last chapter of Revelation there is no sun because God is their light. And there is no temple because God is with his people. We're all, we're all pointing that way. So that is my brief, albeit brief, attempt to deal with the arguments that I've encountered saying that Israel and the church are the same. Let me now quickly move on to point two. Three reasons why the church is distinct from ethnic Israel. First, the absence of any compelling arguments to the contrary. Second, the application of a consistent method of biblical interpretation. Um, this is sometimes called hermeneutics. Perhaps some of you have heard of hermeneutics. Hermes was the Greek messenger god. And so when, um, and not just biblical scholars, but anyone interpreting texts, 
we want to make sure we're interpreting the Bible consistently. Otherwise, the danger is you'll take a passage and you'll read it one way because you like the way that reads, and then you'll get to another passage and you'll do something different because you like the way that is. And so one of the checks and balances we have, one of the reasons why not only do I tell you what I think the Bible means, but why, is because my interpretation is only valid if my method of interpretation or my hermeneutic is valid and consistently applied. And this is, I think, the biggest problem with believing that Israel um, has, has been superseded or that the church is true or spiritual Israel, is that you really then have a hard time dealing with Old Testament passages like what we've been reading in Zechariah. If you turn to Zechariah, let's give you one example. This is point A, literal fulfillment of covenant curses demands the same for the promises. God was very clear and very specific in the book of Deuteronomy. You can turn to chapter 28 and 29 and 30, where God lays out in clear, black and white, absolute terms, what would happen if Israel was faithful and how he would bless them? What would happen to Israel if they were unfaithful and how he would curse them? And one of the things that's clear and undeniable is that the curses, the threats God made to Israel, if they would persist in unbelief, were absolutely, literally fulfilled. He said he would take them from the land. He took them from the land. He said he would besiege them and starve them so that they would eat their own children. And you can read through Kings and Chronicles. That's exactly what happened. Everything God said he would do to them, he did literally. And the problem then becomes, how then, if the curses are interpreted literally, do we spiritualize the promises? Because that is inevitably, if you believe that the church is new, true, or spiritual Israel, what you must do. When you read about God promising to rebuild Jerusalem, well, that's, that's the church growing or expanding an influence or something. You're spiritualizing the passage. And how you can take the curses and say, well, they're literal. And in the very same chapter, the, the blessings, well, they're, they're not meant to be taken literally. They're they're uh, to be interpreted spiritually. It's, it just seems bizarre and beyond my ability to reason. And God makes this point in Zechariah 1 as he's warning them. The very, the very warning he gives in chapter 1, the opening salvo of Zechariah, verse 3, Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds, but they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? Which is to say, isn't what I said would happen exactly what happened? God's pointing them to, you, you can trust me, what I say, I stick to. Turn to chapter 8. We just looked at this. Chapter 8. Verses 14 and 15. Thus says the Lord of hosts, As I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And again, notice the argument. I'm making and we saw this in chapter 8, lavish, ridiculous, just, just amazing promises to Israel and what he would do. Pictures of the old and the children running in the streets of Palestine. I mean, even today that just seems 
Whoa, of, of the Messiah dwelling, of Israel being transformed, called a city of truth. And God says, hey, remember, just as I said the bad stuff would happen, and it did, just as certain as that was, so I've now made these promises. And we know that the curses, the threats happened literally. And it seems to me that passages like this have to be absolutely destroyed and distorted if you say, well, no, even though it talks about the rebuilding of Jerusalem and even though it talks about the nations gathering and coming, it's not meant to be understood literally. It's spiritual. It, it just won't fly. The curses were fulfilled literally. How can the promises be changed any other way? Which really leads into point B. Once you start spiritualizing the text, which you necessarily have to do if you don't think this is talking about Jerusalem, if you don't think this is talking about the walls of the city. And go to chapter 2. Let's just read an example. And and while you turn there, I'll, I'll give you a very simple, safe rule or principle of biblical interpretation. And that is this. If the plain sense makes common sense, seek no other sense, lest you yield nonsense. Let me say that again. If the plain sense makes common sense, seek no other sense, lest you yield nonsense. Now, admittedly, there are different genres of Scripture that get interpreted in different ways. There's, there's poetic language where you understand metaphors are used. God does not have feathers, even though Jesus says he would take them under his wing. It's poetic language, of course, admittedly. And there's definitely, in, in some prophecies, figurative pictures. Absolutely. But when you're reading to the people we're reading to, remember, they're in Jerusalem. They're trying to rebuild the city. They're discouraged. And then you read chapter 2, verses 1 through um, 4. This is pretty straightforward. Let's just pick it up actually in verse 3. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run and say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be with her a wall of fire around her, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. Out of that remnant, hearing that, could they possibly take it to mean anything other than Jerusalem will be inhabited? This isn't complicated. Walls without villages, the people overflowing because of the multitude of peoples, God in their midst, defending them with a wall of fire. This is the vision of the man with the measuring line. But if you don't take it to mean what it plainly says, you can make it mean anything. And so one commentary I was reading, which I generally have benefited from, starts talking about, and this is what they do with it, and if you do it reverently, it can, it can fly. People can preach this in churches, and people go, yeah, that's good. And he talks about the man with the measuring line, and he says, you know, God has a measuring line. And what really the question you've got to ask yourself is this, will you allow yourself to be measured by him on his standards, or will you adopt the world's? Will you adopt the world's standards in measuring yourself and your success? Or will you adopt God's measuring line? And people can sit there and go, deep, deep. But, but the problem is, you could just as easily make it mean five other things. You could just as easily make it mean five other things. You could say, God has a measuring line. In your life, and your attempts to do something here, they're trying to build a city, it will not go a jot or a tittle further than God's measuring line is a portion. He's measured it out. And not by worrying, can you add a single hair to the, your head? Don't worry about tomorrow. God's measurements stand. 
You can't go beyond the boundaries he's set. He's measured your times and portions your seasons. And you could preach that. People go deep, deep. Okay, which one's the right interpretation? They're both biblically true. You could prove those things from other passages. But which one is what this means? And the second you move away from the plain reading the passage, I submit to you, a, a skilled person can make it mean anything. I mean anything. And that concerns me. Because... The Bible can't mean anything. I want to know what God meant when he wrote it. I want to know what God meant when he wrote it. Point C, progressive revelation can add, but not subtract from the original meaning. And this is, this is another important point. As the Bible gets written progressively, God can add detail. He can add nuance. He can deepen and broaden promises. The Bible was not written, unlike um, the Quran is a static whole, but first Moses begins writing, and then, and then Joshua writes, and then other writings are added, and so promises made in earlier sections get developed, get deepened, get broadened, and it's no surprise when we get to the New Testament, the same thing happens, and so Paul can write in Ephesians 5, therefore, speaking to husbands and wives, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. And we go, whoa, you're telling me that all the way back in Genesis 2, when Moses wrote that, and no one would have guessed in Genesis 2, this is about Christ in the church, but Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, yeah, yeah, that was meant to be a picture of Christ in the church. But what Paul is not saying is, therefore, it no longer has to do with men and women and husbands and wives. You see, Later revelation can add, can broaden, can deepen the meaning of the passages, but what it can't do is make it mean less than it meant in the first instance. So sure, could there be spiritual realities spoken about in the the building of Jerusalem? Could there be deeper, broader implications? Sure there could. I'm open to that possibility if someone wants to make the case. I don't believe it can mean less than it meant originally. And there's no doubt in my mind And I don't think anyone can legitimately argue that this would mean anything to Zechariah's audience. Remember, these are people rebuilding the temple. They are people rebuilding Jerusalem. And God comes and says, it'll be a success. And one day, it'll be completely rebuilt. They're going to take it to mean one thing and one thing only. What we can't do is say, well, I know they thought it meant that. But now, we know this is talking about God establishing his church. After all, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. See, that's the building God's talking about here. If that's the case, then this text's meaning is robbed. And God deceived these people in Zechariah's day. He tricked them. Oh, sure, later revelation can add, can broaden, can deepen, can develop God's promise. It cannot take away. cannot take away. And third, where we'll end, the assurance of God's sovereign choice and promise. The assurance of God's sovereign choice and promise. You see, God uses similar language for his choice of Israel that he does for our salvation. I want you to listen. This is just wonderful. You know, so often today in our sort of self-esteem culture, we talk about how, you know, God wouldn't die for trash and you were worth dying for. That's nonsense. He died for us in spite of our corruption. Not because of it. Jesus didn't look down at us from heaven to think we were beautiful. He died to make us beautiful. Listen to what, listen to what, what Moses says to Israel. As they're wondering, why did God choose you? Why did God love you? Why did God 
call you? Is it something we did? Is it something about us? If you are a holy people to the Lord your God, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of people. But it is because the Lord loves you. Why did God love Israel? The wonderful answer is because he loves Israel. Paul says similar things in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 9 will be next week. That God has set his love upon us, not because of works that he saw we would do, not because he looked down the corridors of time and said, oh, that's a good one. He's a keeper. But rather, in the lavish overflow of his love, he just poured it out upon us. That's the reason he gives Israel. He chose them, not because of any works they did, not because of any goodness in them. And the the reason I make that point then is, if that is true, then how could they sin? Could they do something to, to, to negate that? If the choice of Israel is not based upon who they are and the good things they were doing, then how could Israel sin away her election? And if Israel can sin away her election, then what security do you and I have that we cannot do the same thing ourselves? If a person once chosen by God can be lost, then what assurance can we have? Listen to what Paul writes in in Romans chapter 12. Oh, no, sorry, in 11, verse 25. Romans chapter 11, actually 25 to 29. Speaking of this very issue. Lest you be wise in your own sight, he's speaking to Gentiles, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. This is is the passage we're going to walk through next week. I think most clearly, the future for Israel is most clearly and undeniably taught in Romans 9, 10, 11. But we'll take a peek at it right now. In this way, all Israel will be saved. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. That's what I was getting at. An unbelieving Jewish people, like all unbelievers, in one sense, are hostile and opposed to God and opposed to the gospel. So as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election or choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And get this, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Now you want to say a hearty amen to that, because that's the reason we can sing that our anchor will hold fast. Because once God has called us, and once God has saved us, it is irrevocable. If you want to argue that no, Israel's irrevocable calling was sinned away, and there goes any hope and any confidence that I have that I may not do the same. And my great hope, if my anchor will hold me fast, I won't slip through his hands. Even though my heart is prone to wander, the shepherd will come after me. And so yes, a partial hardening of Israel has taken place. Paul writes, and we'll look at this next week, in the future they will be restored. Turn now to Jeremiah 31. This is the last passage we go to for our final point. Jeremiah 31. They were unconditionally chosen, point A, unconditionally chosen. And that choice and that promise throughout the Old Testament is repeatedly and repeatedly ratified. It is restated over and over and over and over again. And I can remember as clear as day sitting in Keith Essex's Old Testament survey class in seminary when I read this passage for the first time and it clicked. 
Jeremiah 31 is the famous, much-loved New Covenant passage where God talks about the New Covenant that He'll make. This is the passage cited in full in Hebrews chapter 8 about the covenant that saves us. And so in in Jeremiah 31, what we're going to see is God is going to tell Israel, I'm going to make a new covenant, but I want you to see what he says after that. So we'll just sort of skim all our way up to there. Look at 31 verse 3. The Lord appeared to him from far away. This is talking about Israel. I'll just start in verse 2. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Then verse 8, talking about the regathering, Behold, I'll bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them, the blind and the lame and the pregnant woman, and she was in labor together. A great company shall return here. With weeping they shall come. And with pleas for mercy, I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they have not stumbled. For I am a father to Israel, and a frame is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it to the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will regather him. And he will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. Verse 13, Then shall the young women rejoice and dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. We saw that last week in Zechariah. Fasts become feasting. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with goodness, declares the Lord. Now, Jump a little further ahead to verse 31. That's the context. That's the the back context of what God is saying. In the context of, I will regather you. I will restore you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I'll be their God. They shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Now this is the promise now of a new covenant replacing or superseding the Sinai covenant, the covenant that Israel could not keep because of their hard heart and unbelief. This is the covenant by which you and I are saved. The writer of Hebrews makes that clear. This new covenant, the covenant Jesus says, this is a new covenant in my blood. All of that coming to this text. Now you can imagine the Israelites hearing this, a new covenant may ask the question, what does that then do with us? Israel was constituted as a geopolitical nation under the Sinai or Mosaic covenant. If there's a new covenant coming, does that then abolish, destroy the Mosaic covenant? Read on. And that was what struck me. In the very passage where a new covenant is promised, just keep reading. I will forgive their iniquity. I'll remember their sins no more. Verse 35, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day 
and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Wow, okay. Then he says it again. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Do you get that? I'm making a new covenant. Not like the old ones. Be different. But don't worry. I will not cast you off, Israel. Don't worry. Your security is as certain as the rising sun and the continuance of the universe. Maybe, maybe he's talking about spiritual realities. Let's keep going. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord, from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. Well, the tower of Hananel must really be talking about the European church. and the No! And the measuring line. You get where Zechariah's getting this from? The measuring line shall go forth farther out, straight to the hill of Gareb, and shall turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the house gate towards the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be uprooted or overthrown anymore forever. And I remember reading that and I remember thinking to myself in class, and you got to understand, I was reading a bunch of Reformed covenantal guys. I was profiting from them. their treatment of the gospel and the sovereignty of God is, is, is excellent. And I'm wondering in my first year in seminary, I wonder if I'm going to end up going down that route. And I remember reading this and just thinking, there's no way. There's no way God could cast off Israel and not make this passage a lie. And there is no way with the specificity of these gates and hills and the Tower of Hanel that this can somehow be transmuted to the church. You know, Charles Feinberg writing about this type of approach that could take something as clear as this and no, it doesn't really mean that. I know it says he'll never cast them away, but really that doesn't mean he'll never cast them away. It means he will cast them away. Charles Feinberg, what baseless and unfounded hermeneutical alchemy. (laughs) This guy's got a flair with words. What baseless and unfounded hermeneutical alchemy is this, which will take all the prophecies of judgment upon Israel at their face value to be understood literally, but will transmute into indistinctiveness any blessing or promise of future glory for the same people. It is a sad state when men cannot see how kingdom conditions can exist alongside of spirituality. No. The very text that contains the promise of a new covenant contains a reiteration, a ratification, triple fold. I will not cast you off. I'm not done with you. Yes, I'm going to make a new covenant. That doesn't mean I'm done with you. And that same faithfulness that doggedly perseveres in in holding out for and ultimately redeeming Israel is the exact same faithfulness that I base my assurance of salvation and that the Lord will hold on to me and doggedly persevere against my sinfulness and my rebellion. That I can't, you can't, we can't sin away our salvation. Amen? Amen. Well, let's close in prayer now. And next week, we'll look at one passage in particular. Lord God, we exalt We rejoice in your faithfulness. You are the God who keeps his word. You are the God who sets his love on undeserving and unworthy people like us. And it is our great hope and our great joy and our great boast that nothing we can do, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from your hand.
you are faithful. That if this is marvelous in our sight, it is not difficult in yours. But you will hold us fast. And our anchor beyond the veil holds. And so, Lord God, we just pray that you would give us that confidence to walk in faith because the same God who promised to restore Israel is the same God who promised that nothing can separate us from you, neither death nor height nor any other thing. Oh, Lord God, thank you for being so faithful to your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.